since I, since I was born in 1936, when uh, we couldn't have imagined that that would be the story in 2008, in our lifetime. Uh, my grandchildren now, learning about the civil rights movement, it isn't part of their life. They learn about it the same way I learn about the, you know, the Revolutionary War. And so it's, it's, you know, well, actually, no, not even the Civil War, but, you know, but, but, you know, it's something that happened way before them. And they're surprised about it. I mean, they, uh, they don't have any direct experience with, in living in segregated communities. I, I lived for two years in Fort Benning, Georgia in, in 1960. So I was very, very excited about that. And thrilled that it worked out that way. And, I, and when I came the next day, everybody here was thrilled. And we were all sleep deprived because we stayed up all night. And I, I did to watch endless reruns of the acceptance speech. And so we were all pretty excited. And I left here and I drove back uh, to Sonoma County where I was living. And I stopped in the Needlepoint store. We won't say which one. Actually, it's not there anymore. I'm, that's the last thing to tell you about it. But anyway, I went there, it's irrelevant to the story. I went there to the needlepoint store because I had finished a large needlepoint and I'd had it blocked and I went to pick it up and I was pleased to have that. And I, I knew we'll call her Nancy, it's not her name, the owner of the store. Because I'd done lots of needlepoints and I'd had them framed and I'd bought lots of wool. And I picked up my needlepoint, and we talked about the, the needlepoint, how nice it was, wrap it up, take it out. I'm going out the door, and she said, you should buy another canvas soon and start another one. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe I will. You know, I'm not today, but I'll be back soon because I'm so excited. I have so much energy all of a sudden because I'm so excited about the way that the election turned out. And she said, you were excited? She said, I was so devastated. I was terrified. I thought I'm going to kill myself. I thought I'm going to leave the country. I said, what? What are you talking about? And she said, well, do you know who Obama's friends are? So I said, wow, wait a minute. You want to talk about friends? You know who Mr. McCain's friends are? And then it deteriorated a little worse. And I said, you know, I'll have to come back another time. And I went out the door, and I felt devastated that I had done that. I thought, what did I do? The operative phrase was, I was terrified. I thought I'm going to kill myself. It was my opportunity to say, please don't worry about it. I'm so sorry you feel that way. I'm sure it'll be all right. I'll come back another time, and we'll talk about it. Somebody tells me they're in pain. The, it, the only possible reasonable thing for me to say is I'm so sorry. And in my own foggy jubilation and lack of sleep and all the reasons that, that caused me not to have a clear mind, I had completely the, the wrong response. And I thought, I, I you know, got out to my car and I thought I'll go back and apologize to Nancy. And I thought, nah, there's somebody else shopping in the store and you know, that she's probably upset, I'm upset. I drove home, and I thought I'll call her. So I went home, and I called her, 
and she didn't answer the phone. It rang and rang and rang and rang. And then the answer machine came on, and I thought, uh, it was the middle of the day, I thought, oh, I probably upset her so much that she went home, closed the store. Uh, <laughs> so I left a long message, and I said, I'm so sorry, Nancy, you know. That was really terrible of me. I really, I should have gotten it. You're really upset. I really wanted to say, I'm so sorry that you're upset. I mean, I really see things differently. I think it's going to be okay. But really, uh, I, I, can't, I can't tell you for sure it's going to be okay, but I think it's going to be okay. And really, I have a cousin in San Francisco who votes entirely differently from how I do, and I love her very much, and you know, I just have never been able to engage her successfully in a conversation about it. <laughs> but you know, maybe someday you and I will have a conversation. But I'm so sorry, Nancy. I'm really sorry about it. I'm humiliated that I did that. And then I hang up. And a little while later, Nancy calls me back. And she said, you know, I'm so sorry that that happened. I got your phone call. I was with a shopper, so I didn't answer your phone. See, I'm thinking right away the drama. I've done her in. She's left. She's so upset. She probably was very upset, but it, the dramatic end just shows you who I am, not who she is. You know? She said, you know, I was with a, a, a customer, but now no one's in the store, so we can talk. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that, you know. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't polite of me. And, I, you know, we, we, we're both falling all over ourselves apologizing because it wasn't kind on, on, you know, on anybody's side. But we were all distraught. I, she was distraught about what had happened, and I was super jubilant about what had happened. And the lesson that I learned at that point is there's a thing, there's a category of what are called near enemies, in the, in the Dharma that the Buddha taught. He taught that there are four sublime states, and those sublime states are uh, impartial love, full compassion, the ability to, um, for empathic joy, which is really delight in other people's good fortune, and equanimity. And equanimity is really felt to be the foundation of all of those things, that the mind, when it rests in equanimity, is able to respond appropriately to whatever kind of situation it finds itself faced with. So here's the mind resting in equanimity, and something comes up that's just a neutral thing, doesn't inspire uh, alarm, it doesn't inspire anything particular, but it's just the world going about its business. And uh, my mind, everybody's mind, when it's relaxed and it meets the world going about its business, recognizes that for everybody, life is a complicated thing. Ten thousand, few people this morning mentioned 10,000 joys, 10,000 woes that are part of being a human being. The mind in its resting state realizes when it meets anyone, this is a person. And they, like I, have a life. They, like I, want to be happy, want to be able to know that their family is well, want to be able to feel secure, want to feel safe. The relaxed mind responds to meeting people with cordial, warm intent. May you be well. The phrases for uh, that kind of impartial love is may you feel safe, may you feel happy, may you feel strong, may you live with ease. 
because you don't have to know the particulars of people's lives to know that that's what everybody would like to feel, safe and content or happy and strong and live with ease. And when the mind is relaxed, you think that. I think that a lot. If I'm flying on planes, and you look at all those people sitting around, you don't know them at all. You don't know whether they're on their way to a 50th anniversary party or on their way to a funeral or on their way to whatever they're on their way to, a business deal that they're afraid of the outcome, or a class reunion, or a date with someone they met on the internet. Don't know where they're going, but they're going somewhere and they hope it's going to work out well. And when I'm not worried about something or tied up with my own interior story, when I am not trapped in self, self-consciousness, the mind thinks goodwill. It just does. We are... We are a, as a species, I think we're, we are fundamentally congenial. We're herd animals. We like to hang with other people for the most part. So that's kind of impartial love. And the near enemy of impartial love is uh, described in the text as uh, attachment. It means, uh, it, means uh, it manifests as kind of affection and warm good wishes, but sort of, sort of on its own terms. I'll love you as long as you love me. Or I love you, but you have to prove to me that you love me as much. Or I can't stand the idea that you have a life without me. It's, it's a love that's not impartial to everybody. That's, that's, and we are all, by the way, somewhat partial you know, to our own people more than the people we don't know. That actually is built into the limbic system. I don't think it can be otherwise. So preferring to be with kin and with people familiar is not a peculiar thing. It's part of being a, a, a person. But making demands on the other person, not I love you and I'll let you flower. May you be whoever and whatever you need to be. So that's, that it, says, it says in the text it looks like love, but it's not really love. It's a love that's self-centered here and, and, and state-dependent person depending. And uh, here's the mind and uh, resting in a certain amount of balance or equanimity. And it comes upon a situation of difficulty where someone is struggling. And it reacts with, 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 with warm wishes, with compassion, really. And it happens to us a lot, I'm sure. When you watch television and you see... Uh, if you, if you watched television yesterday and you saw people standing looking at rubble of what used to be their house, and you feel for them, there's all their stuff and it's completely wrecked, and uh, you don't know the people, but it's a devastating state. You know? And we do that also, again, because we're human beings. It could be, it happens sometimes when. Uh, uh, I'm on the, maybe this happens to you, you might be driving on the freeway and all of a sudden the uh, traffic gets all completely blocked and you're going to be late for somewhere. You're tense and uh, looking around, look, only one person in each car, so that's what's the trouble with people should not, people should carpool so we wouldn't have this kind of, I myself am alone in the car, you know, but... <laughs> You know, the mind starts to think disagreeable thoughts at that point, you know, because it's, it's not going my way. And then all of a sudden, in the, in the emergency lane, a fire engine and an ambulance go by. 
and it like sobers up the mind. It wakes it up. Whoa. You know, take, it, it, it wakes it up out of its self-absorption. Somebody up there is having trouble. That's why we have this traffic jam. And all of a sudden, you find yourself thinking, may they be all right. May they not be dead. May they get home tonight. May they get better from whatever happened. And you don't have to think, what should I say now? You start to think, not, not necessarily formalized, may you be well, may you be happy. But that's the kind of thought that you think. Because the mind also gets it. It could be me. It could be mine. It could be my people. I remember, probably you remember, this is an example of how the mind does my people. Um, do you remember the 1989 earthquake? Everybody knows where they were exactly at 5.23 or whenever it was in the afternoon. Hmm? 5.07. 5.07. It <laughs> was just in the opening pitch of the ball game. But I remember where I was. And uh, actually, I was sitting, uh, sitting in my study downstairs in my house uh, here in Kentfield with two people. And uh, I actually didn't recognize it right away. And one of those two people said, hey, we're having an earthquake. Uh, and maybe we should step outside. So we stand up. We step outside. And the first thing I did was I looked at my watch. And I knew immediately at 5.03, was it 5.03? 507. My mind did the math of where are all my people at 507? What bridges could they possibly be on at this point? And I knew from what everybody might have been doing at that time that nobody I knew was likely to be on a bridge. And then I started to worry about all the other people. I think the mind does that. It thinks first about where are my people. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think, I think we're wired that way. As are, I think, most species, you know, not, not, not just human. We, you know, I, I, anyway, not just human. I think animal species know where their offspring are. And it's a, a, a natural, I think that compassion is naturally wired into us. Uh, who knows what cats or dogs or cows are thinking when they're separated from their, their offspring. And maybe they don't think thoughts, maybe they just feel uncomfortable, but maybe they do think thoughts. Uh, and we think thoughts about it. And when we see people bereaved, uh, say on television news, because their child or their brother or their husband has been killed or harmed, you feel bad for them, you don't even know them, because we intuit how that would feel in our body. And so the second of those, uh, of those sublime states is, is called compassion. It's, it's, it's defined in the text as the quivering of the heart in response to confronting pain. And it's confronting the pain and, and recognizing in the confrontation that uh, that could be me, that this is what happens in a life, that this is a thing that happens in the world. We are all vulnerable. They're all vulnerable. And pity is said to be the near enemy of compassion. Because compassion is this could happen to any of us. And you feel it. The quivering of the heart in response to other people's pain is a resonance. Pity is something that sets you apart from it. This is happening to those people. It's kind of thought that uh, one might conceivably have 
when you see someone whose life has fallen on really hard times, that maybe street people, maybe people with signs, and uh, I need a meal. To, to, to think, it's hard to think that sometimes that could be me, you know. Sometimes people thinking, uh, I'm going to stay away from all the political connections. It's possible to think that everybody could take care of themselves and get themselves out of every kind of a bad circumstance, or if they're in a bad circumstance, that they did it. They're in a bad circumstance because over time, for whatever reasons, they're in the bad circumstance. And it's a person. And recognizing how that feels, then compassion comes up in it. If you can't stand looking at it, what comes up is pity, which pushes it away. So pity is called the near enemy of compassion. It looks like that. It looks like compassion, but it really isn't. It's that poor person. If only they would have done this or that or this or that or not got into drugs or drinking or this or that, they'd be if only. But it's, it's, it's really recognizing the pain, but also having aversion about it, not being able to countenance the fact that pain happens to people for all kinds of reasons. So pity is a near enemy. And then the third of those sublime states is called mudita. It's uh, defined as empathic joy. Um, you can get excited for other people being excited about something. And it's not even something that you do. I, I, I love to think about when you watch Olympics. You watch the Olympics and somebody does something great. They, they figure skate and they do something amazing and then they get a perfect score on the figure skating, and they show you the coach of that person who's beside himself or herself. Or they go over in the stands and they show you the mother and father of that person who are beside themselves. And you feel really excited for them, don't you? And I don't know anybody who ever, and my children did not figure skate, nobody I know figure skates. I didn't skate in that kind of a way. But still, what you recognize is the feeling in that person of complete delight in what's going on for them. And you can share in that delight. It becomes as if it's your pleasure as well. I just used to watch the, the people who come to uh, watch Nutcracker and all its uh, incarnations, which I'll do this year because uh, my granddaughter is in the Stapleton Ballet. Uh, Nutcracker, and I had a daughter who danced with another Nutcracker, and the audience is full of parents of people underneath a dragon costume, so you can't even tell which one is which, but you actually can tell which one is which because the legs stick out, and you can know which is yours from the legs, but you feel delighted about yours, but then you know that everybody else is feeling the same delighted, they're in a good mood, all these people. I used to love to go to second grade concerts and you know watch all these parents who braided and pleated and combed and coiffed and delight in other people's good fortune enhances one's own delight and if one it doesn't even have children in the second grade you get excited about the other people who do have children in the second grade so so much energy went into this braiding and combing and and then the near enemy of uh, mudita, empathic joy, 
in the text is called exuberance. And I never actually understood that very well because I thought, you know, exuberant is, you know, happy is regular and exuberant is very happy. And I, and I couldn't actually, for a long time, it didn't exactly resonate with me, exuberance, as the near enemy of empathic joy. Until I made that mistake with the woman in the needlepoint store. Because what I think it means, or what it means to me now, is exuberance means the mind so carried away with delight and happiness that it confuses itself and it forgets. So that it confuses itself so that it becomes inept and it startles more easily. It's, not, it's out of balance. And somebody says something and rather than have a balanced and appropriate response like, I think it'll be all right. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I think it'll be all right. I'm sorry you feel upset. It makes an inept response. So I think that's actually really true. What I was thinking about, I think I talked about this last week as well, is that my practice over the last year or two has been very much not to make my personality so that it's bland and you know don't get excited about anything. It doesn't fit with me. I mean, I'm not made out of that kind of stuff. I am pretty excitable and I get very excited and I get dramatically distraught and but but which is fine everybody's got different personalities I don't have an especially tranquil personality I think I don't even want a particularly tranquil personality it's not it, you know it doesn't I don't know how I'd be but I wouldn't be me and I'm used to being me and I like me but I I really have become aware particularly uh watching it in, in meditation and in a meditation retreat, that the mind carried away by, by anything is the mind that can't see clearly. That here's the mind and the essential component with, uh, with all of those sublime states, to keep them the sublime state and not the near enemy of the sublime state is equanimity. So that as one experiences the pleasure one remembers it's ephemeral, it's not gonna last, it's just for now. By the way, that was what I thought about the most before the election yesterday. I thought, I thought about, suppose it goes the other way, because it might have. I thought to myself, well, maybe I was just trying to convince myself. But I thought, you know, it could go the other way. It could have, it almost did. What if it goes the other way? And then I think, well, what if? Well, what if, first of all, maybe it would be all right. And you know, I don't think so for X, Y, da 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 da, da all the reasons that I could have said, no, no, I have to vote this way, Supreme Court, Roe Wade, da 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 da. I don't think it would have been all right, but I don't know. There's a very, um, there are wonderful stories told about Abraham Lincoln. Do you know that when he was elected president, he immediately appointed Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury and Commerce. He appointed the very men who had opposed him in the primaries and whom he had just barely defeated to become president. There's a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I love that. I love that. It's coming out as a movie called Lincoln that Spielberg is making which I just happened to have read about. Did it open? Did anybody see it? Hmm? 16th. So in this issue of the Smithsonian, it's talking about 
how they made that movie. And Doris Kearns Goodman was one of the uh, consultants on it. And they talk about one of the reasons that made Lincoln a very good president was that his, his lack of self-importance. He really made himself, well, yeah. Lincoln's lack of self-importance extended, uh, <laughs> well, I didn't mean to read the sentence, but I said, his lack of self-importance extended even further with that pluperfect horse's ass, General George B. McClellan. I'm sorry about that, but I said that. In 1861, this is, this is not what Lincoln said, that he's a horse's ass. It's what this particular writer said. Uh, McClellan was using, in 1861, McClellan was using his command of the army and of the Potomac to enhance his own self-esteem rather than to engage the enemy. In letters home, he was mocking Lincoln as the original guerrilla. Lincoln kept urging McClellan to fight. In reading Goodwin's book, Oh, this is this writer saying, I tried to identify which of the many lively scenes would be in the movie. Uh, so here's the one that turns out from her book to be in the movie. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, John Hay went to, and uh, Secretary of State William Seward, Lincoln's secretary John Hay, and Lincoln went to McClellan's house. She wrote, Told that the general was at a wedding, the three waited in the parlor for an hour. When McClellan arrived home, the porter told him the president was waiting, but McClellan passed by the parlor room and climbed the stairs to his private quarters. After another half hour, Lincoln again sent word that he was waiting, only to be informed that the general had gone to sleep. <laughs> Young John Hay was en enraged. To Hay's surprise, Lincoln seemed not to have noticed it specifically saying it was better at this time not to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. He would hold, he said, McClellan's horse if victory could be achieved. There's a, there's a Buddhist story about a particular, James likes to tell it a lot, a particular abbot of a monastery who uh, has another abbot of a nearby monastery come and visit him, uh, specifically to say, I notice that the monks in your monastery don't seem to have any strife between them. And you know there must be things that come, and certainly not between them and you, there must be things that come up. In my monastery, I have a fair amount of strife. Uh, don't your monks ever disagree with you? And what do you do? He said, well, as a matter of fact, they do disagree with me. And, Pretty often, he said, and sometimes I start to feel upset, he said, but then I think to myself, what noble people these monks are. Look at them. They have dedicated their life to the Dharma and to this work of transformation. Such noble people. Maybe they're right. He said, and then we think about things and we work them out. I think to myself, uh, when, um, I don't know if when, the president said in his speech last night, or uh, I think he did. It must have been the rerun of the speech that I saw this. Anyway, he said, I'm looking forward in several weeks to having a visit in the White House with um, Mitt, Romney. Mitt Romney, with Governor Romney, very polite. 
I'm having a conversation with the governor and see what I can learn from him about how we can work harmoniously with both parties to move this country forward. And I thought about this, this, this idea of team of rivals. It was a very, very uh, encouraging thing to hear. Does that make sense to you, that, uh, that near enemy? What were you going to say, Robin? I was going to say, so since we haven't seen the movie yet, yeah. and I haven't read the book, did these disparate people, were they able to work well together? Mostly. Uh, I mean, General McClellan wasn't, you know, but... Because, because I had that thought this morning. Would um, Obama invite Mitt Romney in yeah. some way to be a part of the new governing body? And, um, more so, what I'm really, I'm so struck when you were saying uh, we're hardwired for compassion through our limbic system, that it's a natural part of being human. Mm. And I've just come back from India on a very spontaneous trip, and it's one thing when you find yourself in a circumstance like the hurricane or a terrible earthquake, a crisis situation which is not ongoing and which is very troubling. And then you give money or you give of your hands, whatever way you can be a help. And when you find yourself in an entrenched system that is so oppressive everywhere you look, you know, to maintain one's equanimity is a stretch. <laughs> I think I think we probably all agree it's a stretch. It's hard. It's hard. Um, well, there's two parts to what you said. The the in a crisis. I mean, we all you know, just last week. Uh, you probably saw the news clip of um, the uh, restaurant people in southern Manhattan, whose electricity had failed, and they had freezers full of steak and all kinds of, so set up barbecues on the, on the street and were barbecuing meat and giving away meals to people because they, you know, they couldn't keep the meat. And so here it is, and what do you do? You give it away to people and also people who can't cook and so you barbecue in the street. And we, they, the people I, I know who live in New York said that everybody was extraordinary at the time of 9-11. People did all kinds of things took in people, looked at people, and they said, New Yorkers looked at people in the eye, which they don't n normally do, which you can't, you know, you have so many people around. But you looked at people in the eye just to notice that they were your kin, I think, and that they had survived. I think there's something about that. Um, why are, you know, I, the other part of your question about do we become... Um, used to ongoing pain so that we can't notice anymore. I don't know. I don't know. But I think we are hardwired somehow for compassion. And sometimes you look and you say, well, wait a minute, how could this person do that or that person do this? Uh, I think most of us, most people are wired to respond compassionately. So, uh, you know, I, I have really, I've really thought about it a lot about people who do atrocities that in, 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 in certain circumstances. And I think to myself, I could never do that. And I think I couldn't, actually. There's a Thich Nhat Hanh poem about I am the 
sea captain, and I'm the 12-year-old who was raped by the sea captain. I am everybody. But um, I think to myself, I'm not everybody. I have a different nervous system, and not because I'm special. I don't know what I would do, but I don't think I could take the life of a person. I don't. Uh, I don't know what I would do if I were in any sort of a situation. But, and and some people, uh, some some people are wired differently. I think some people are wired differently. But my this is my own innate sense. I think most of us are wired for kindness. I I think that. The people often ask, you know, what about the Hitlers of the world? What about this? What about that? Uh, I don't know, but I don't think, I think it's different wiring. I think it's different wiring to be able to tolerate purposely hurting huge numbers of people. And I think most people aren't like that. I think given a chance, you know, I always think about uh, if we, uh, if any of us opened the door in the morning, it used to be, when I was young, there used to be cartoons that uh, uh, had to do with people leaving babies on doorsteps. It was a social commentary of the time. Anyway, it doesn't happen now. But, and I, I thought to myself, most of us are wired so that if we opened the door and there was a baby on the doorstep, we'd pick it up and take care of it and do something, wouldn't we? I mean, here's a crying baby on your doorstep. You pick it up. Maybe you don't keep it, but you do the right thing with it. You find authorities that'll take care of it. We respond to that. I think that's wired, and in the same Smithsonian, there's a really beautiful article on gorillas, and it shows a very, well, I'll show it to you, because I looked at it a lot of times, I was thinking I might tell you about it. It shows a picture of a mother gorilla cradling a two-day-old, a two-day-old stillborn baby and not putting it down and, and oh here it is it's called primal instinct and there's a picture there's a picture of a mother gorilla with a two-day-old baby still grooming it and trying to wake it up and you look at it and you feel so sad you know you intuit you look at the face of that mother I'm gonna pass it around Susan pay it pass it around as it says, you know, you look at this and you can't help but be moved by it. Isn't that true? Oh. Ah, see? <laughs> There's something in the gesture of how it's holding that baby. And see? It'll come around, you see. I think that's wired into us. Anybody gives us a baby, you hold it. You take care of it. You bend into it. You, you, you're careful of it. I think that's what preserves species, don't you think? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, have to have, you know, more yes than no. So I have, we have a chance to say one more thing for today. Now, this is like a little bit of a, um, of a coming attractions for what I want to do in January with you when I'm back. I, I'll be gone from now until January, but I'll be here all of January and most of February. and. I'd, I had this insight while I was um, sitting two weeks ago. There are a certain there are certain rubrics in in Dharma teaching that uh, that sound, for instance, like uh, there's uh, things unfold over time, like uh, mindfulness leads to equanimity, leads to wisdom 
leads to compassion. Does that make sense? I've been thinking for a long time that maybe it goes the other way as well, not, not, not negating that, but maybe practicing compassion, if we had that as a, as a, as a societal good. We do. Um, people join, uh, people decide to serve. They give out meals at St. Vincent de Paul. They become members of a religious order. They, they join aid societies. Practicing compassion leads to wisdom because you see how, how much suffering there is and how responding to suffering with kindness makes the responder feel better. Not only the recipient of the kindness, but the responder gets to feel better. When you take care of somebody who's in pain or in need, they hope, one hopes, feels better, and you feel better in the doing. Is that not true? It's a reciprocal relationship. So that's the wisdom that we find out, that kindness is really a solace to the kind person. Which then, uh, so that, that's the wisdom which comes from that, which brings that insight that it doesn't even matter which way, as Susan said, it's a, was Susan? Somebody, Mo Marty said it's a reciprocal relationship. And then it's mindfulness that actually has us alert enough to realize that. So, so I've been thinking for some time, and you know it because I've been telling you for some time, that maybe it's not that mindfulness leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to compassion. Maybe you can start at the other end. But I made a whole list of uh, words that we use sometimes in those kinds of this leads to this sentence. Mindfulness leads to compassion, leads to forgiveness, promotes equanimity, uh, leads to wisdom, um, manifests as liberation, manifests as freedom. And I was just contemplating all of those while I was on retreat. And I began to think that the leads to, leads to, leads to is misleading. That they all actually are synonyms for each other. That uh, if mindfulness is the non-coercive meeting of the mind with whatever it's meeting, it's just as it is and it's like that, then it's actually a form of freedom that the mind is not obligated by habit to respond in any kind of a way that creates a storm in it. It's also a form of liberation. So liberated from all those habits that cause storms of uproar response. It also uh, is that mindfulness being the non-coercive meeting of the moment is a form of, is, of equanimity which is also a non-coercive meeting of the moment. This is how it is, okay. This is how it is. Uh, that it's also another way to think about forgiveness. If I meet this moment and I say, okay, that's how things are. It's, we could rephrase it as it's forgiving the moment for being however it is. So I thought that would be odd if all these things that we've talked about, about this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. I began to think, maybe they're all exactly the same. I said, well, maybe they're not exactly the same because compassion isn't exactly the same as mindfulness because mindfulness is the, or equanimity is the 
uh, realization that this is all happening, non-coercive. But compassion isn't coercive either. That compassion is the warm feeling towards something, but it doesn't disturb the clarity of the mind, doesn't stir up the mind at all. So I began to make a project for myself of could I separate those seven or eight things, or are they all the same? Uh, then at one point I thought, well, they're a little bit different from each other, but I think they are co-arising, that compassion cannot arise without equanimity, keeping it from falling over into pity or aversion, that maybe they're all co-arising. And I began to think about elaborating that into a kind of a graph with everything is everything, but then it's not everything. And so I thought, I, I kind of like the idea of developing that as a theme. Like, do you remember when we talked about the 10 paramitas, actually all our kindness, and you can put them all together, or you can parse them apart. So I thought I would try to develop that into uh, seven or eight different themes. Does that interest you? I think that's a good idea. Should we do it? All right. And that's what I'll do. I'll think about that for the seven weeks from now until then. I'm really sorry I'm not going to be here for Thanksgiving because uh, gratitude and gratefulness is another way of talking about equanimity because when the mind is relaxed, it's uh, naturally grateful because it recognizes that here I am and it could be otherwise, but it's not otherwise, here I am. So there's a natural gratitude that comes up. So I'm sorry I'm not here for Thanksgiving. I'm sorry I'm not here for Hanukkah because then I could talk about the way in which suddenly in the middle of the darkness of uh, the winter and even in the darkness of one's own mind when it's obscured, you can suddenly have the light of seeing clearly and the freedom that comes from it. I'm sorry that I'm not here for Christmas. We could talk about the birth of hope. And... Uh, I actually will miss New Year. So we can talk about starting again. But we will start again in January, and I'll be here. The only thing that we will not start again will continue is reminding you about the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. And Serena is in the back. Serena's going to wave so you see who Serena is. So, um, again, nothing leads to nothing. So we can't really say may our being together lead to, may our being together and our working together and thinking together and praying together for the well-being of all beings everywhere, may that um, so inspire and clarify our own minds and our own hearts and their determination that that inspiration uh, develops as energy that empowers us as we leave here, as we go on into our lives and come back and forth and back and forth in our separate ways until we meet again. May we and all beings feel safe and content and strong and live with ease. Thank you. Is there a date set to start building? Well, if we get the money, we'll start building in the spring.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.